Well, good morning, church. It's been good to worship the Lord with you, and uh, I really look forward to this evening, our Rocky family night at six. I hope you'll come. It's an opportunity to hear from Thomas and Julie Hamilton about their ministry in Southeast Asia, and also for us to hear more about Jesse Harlan's heart for our church and how the Lord has been working in his heart to, to, for him to, um, to truly consider this, this call to elder. And so I hope you'll come. Uh, I would like to remind you that we're in a, a, a time of polling. So if you're a member of the church, we, we ask that each of you um, fill out uh, one of these uh, forms and you'll find them on your way out on the, in the foyer on the right next to the red box. Um, and if you have any feedback for us elders, um, we're now going into week two. We always do three weeks of polling. Uh, I would ask you, please don't wait until the very last day. You, you would actually love us and help us by today um, uh, indicating anything that you feel we need to know, okay? Uh, and not waiting to the last moment, okay? So please do uh, fill that out if you haven't already as we eagerly and prayerfully seek the Lord's will regarding Jesse coming on as one of our elders, and believe me, we, we need all the help we can get. Uh, we are so blessed. Um, I'm blessed by each elder on the team, but we need, we need more shepherds. Well, this morning, we've finally landed in John chapter 17, what is known as the high priestly prayer. This is just a, there, there's just majesty and intimacy in this prayer of Christ as he pours out his heart to his Father, just steps away from the cross. Um, on the eve before he goes to the cross to complete his mission, to suffer for our sake, he, he just cries out to his father. One Irish preacher wrote more than 500 pages of sermon notes on this one chapter. And so uh, it's a daunting task, but we're going to try to cover this in two weeks and I recognize that, that we're not going to be able to mine the riches, you know, we're not going to get to the, every little possi possibility here. I, I encourage you this week to just marinate in John 17, read it over and over. But this week we're going to look at verses 1 through 19, uh, which is part one. And then next week, Pastor Billy is going to be bringing part two, that would be verses 20 through 26, in which Jesus specifically prays for us. And I'm really looking forward to that. In, in between, um, I have the opportunity this week, starting at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, to travel to the Philippines to visit uh, the Douglas family. I would really appreciate your prayers for Matt and I as we go, that the Lord would use us to encourage their hearts, um, uh, that He would help us just to give us strength and wisdom as we visit and spend time with them and, and, and look at their ministry with them. Uh, and I hope to get back Saturday night just in time for Sunday morning because we, we have a special week next Sunday. We plan to ordain nine new deacons. And so we're very excited about that. Um, but in our text this morning, we see two parts. Uh, so really, John 17 is really broken up into three sections. I mentioned Billy has the last in which Jesus prays for us. That would be those who believe based on his disciples' ministry right? That's us today. We've, we've read the Gospels they wrote, and we believe. But this morning, we're going to look at the first five verses in which Jesus prays for himself, followed by verses 6 through 19 in which he prays for his disciples. And so, Jesus prays for himself, uh, starting in verse 1, where he says, this, he says, Father, the hour has come. So, this is, this is the moment, and you can, you can hear the music intensifying in the drama here. 
Everything in the Bible thus far has led to this moment. Since Adam's sin, the world has been waiting to be redeemed. And so here it is, Jesus is about to go to the cross and to crush the serpent's head and break that curse of sin that our world has been bound by, that, that curse of sin that has kept us from God, he is about to go and to break it and to accomplish his mission. So what does Jesus pray for here? Strength to accomplish that mission of going to the cross? No, Jesus actually prays for his glory. And I, I count five times in these five verses that he asks God to glorify him or where we see that word glory. And you know, that might seem a little, a little bit odd. We, we talk a lot about following our hero Jesus because Jesus did it as a man, right? And, and so we're to walk as he walked, following his example, but, but here is a place where we differ where we should not follow his example by seeking our own glory, for that would be idolatry for us, but it was right for Jesus to pray for his glory. The Hebrew word glory, kabod, means weight or worthiness. We might say today when we think of biblical glory, we might use the word majesty. And we see God's glory when we look at the creation around us, when we look at the, the sea and the things that fill the sea, or you go on a trip to the mountains, or you see the sunset, or you look through a, a telescope and you see the stars, and even a big telescope, and maybe you see the, the galaxies. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But, but nowhere do we see God's glory more potently than in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We got to just stop and, and marvel at that. Baby Jesus growing and yet maintaining the universe, the atomic structure by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is a a picture of glory, and so it is right, and frankly, I believe it's even for our benefit for Jesus to ask God the Father to glorify him. But, but the way in which Jesus asks God to glorify him might surprise you. It did me when I first read this, because he, he asks God, in the context here, for glory in the cross. And if you're following along in the worship guide, you'll notice some blanks. That, that's your first blank here um, in this subpoint. Glory in the cross. So look at the context again in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Well, what is he talking about here? He's saying, this is my moment. Help me glorify you by going to the cross and glorify me. In the cross. Well, how could the cross glorify Jesus? I, I would think it's the opposite. That the cross was designed to humiliate a man. It was the most cruel form of execution in the Roman arsenal. And they had a lot of cruelty that they had thought about. 
Further, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, spiritually, Jesus was cursed as he hung on the cross. Being cursed is the opposite of being glorified, right? So how in the world could Jesus actually find or hope for glory in the cross? I'll let you stew on that for a second. Well, I think the answer here is that Jesus is not limited in his perspective as we are to the time and space continuum. He's able to see while he looks as a man to the cross right ahead of him. He's able to look past that and to see the eternal greater picture of what he was about to do on the cross. The cross of Jesus demonstrates God's perfect justice and his perfect love. And that's about what Jesus, what Jesus was going to be all about doing on the cross. When you look at this cross here, think of the two beams of the cross. We see that horizontal beam on which Jesus' hands were nailed. And this beam demonstrates God's perfect justice. He perfectly hates our sin because he is truly holy. He cannot and he will not compromise. And that is why God doesn't just look the other way and say, fine, come on in. Come on, be with me. He cannot because he is holy and punishment is due for sin. And that is why we should really hate our sin. And when we see others sin, we shouldn't hate them. We should hate the sin. And frankly, we ought to see the same category of sin that's in our own life and we should be appalled by it. And we should confess that. I've had to confess it this morning. And remember that Jesus offered his own hands for us. So the vertical beam shows us God's unconditional love, reaching from heavens above down to this earth, right into our own hearts, as Jesus Christ suffered what we deserved in our place. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, The cross proves there is no limit to God's love. God who created the universe saw his son hanging on the tree of Golgotha, covered with the spittle of those who came to save, gasping his final breaths while the sins of the world were showered upon his pure heart. The deeper our contemplation of the tragedy of the cross, the deeper is our understanding of God and the more profound our glorification of him. You know, when we think about even present tense in terms of time as we know it in heaven. And when we think about eternity future, right? What we will be doing along with the heavenly hosts as is pictured in Revelation 5, we're going to be glorifying and they are glorifying Jesus Christ for his cross work. We read in Revelation 5 verse 11, then I, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why? Because he did this work on the cross. Now, now we, can, we can try to use our minds to imagine this spectacle of glorification going on in heaven of, of worship, right? And, and we can 
use our minds to picture even that dark day in which Jesus hung on the cross for our sins, right? But we don't actually get to see this in our lives today. We've got to actually use our minds through the lens of faith to see it. But you know, we actually do get to see and experience Jesus' next request today in our lives. And that is he prayed for God's glory through his own people, through his disciples, right? Look at verse two through three. Here's what Jesus prays. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Well, what Jesus is saying here, what what a beautiful verse here nestled right in in here, this prayer. What it means to be a Christian, to be born again, is to actually know the true God. And the first part of this is knowing about the true God. And he has given us his self-disclosure right here in his word in which he tells us about him. And so we study it together on Sunday mornings, but I hope that you read it daily so that you can know more about God. You can understand more about the Holy Spirit and about who Jesus is. But Jesus said that his disciples don't just know about him. He said that we, his disciples, know him. That would mean a personal relationship that, goes, that, that grows daily through faith and revelation. And you know, our church's vision statement, which is on our, 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 our bulletins, is that we exist to know him and, and to make him known. And that's our heart's prayer is that every one of you in this room and, and your children as you, as you disciple them would, would truly come to know him, to have that personal relationship with him where you listen, where you speak, where you grow in intimacy with him. But you know, there's even more here. And that is, the more we know God, the more that we behold and reflect His glory, the more that we will be transformed closer to His image through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, think about Moses. Remember, Moses was hid in the rock. His face was veiled. God's glory passed by, and Moses' face radiated the glory of God. Well, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled face, right? Not veiled like Moses, but unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So today, the, the world doesn't get to see Jesus physically But Jesus' prayer was that the world would see him radiated in our faces. Talk about a responsibility. Talk about conviction here, right? That, That we were designed to radiate and reflect his glory in this dark world. I'm not talking about a fake, you know, happy, clappy Christianity. I'm talking about people who behold him and become what they behold. If we're spending more time Uh, in in this world's entertainment, guess what's going to happen? We're going to become what we behold. But if we're looking at Jesus in his word, in worship, we're going to become what we behold and we will reflect 
his glory. That's what Jesus is praying for right here. God's glory in his disciples, in his people, in us. Well, Jesus also prayed for the glory of heaven to be restored. So think about this in verse four and five. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before this world existed. So let's stop and think about that for a minute, okay? The glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, first of all, Jesus, the man, said this. And and as we've been working through the Gospel of John, we've pointed out unmistakable statements that Jesus made about his deity, all right? Um, and oftentimes we think of Jesus saying, you know, I, I am who I am, or, or before, before Abraham was, I am, before Moses was, I am, and, and that goes back to Moses at the burning bush where God revealed himself by saying, I am who I am. But, you know, if, if there's a claim to deity here that's unmistakable, that you can use with your Jehovah's Witness friends, Let this be it. I mean, here's just one more. The glory I had with you before the world existed. I mean, no man can say that. Before the world was created, I was with you in glory. No man can say that. So you just, Jesus doesn't leave leave an option, right? To just be a, a glorified man or, you know, a great sage we should listen to. Frankly, he was, as, as C.S. Lewis put it, either a, the biggest liar the world's ever known, or he was a lunatic, totally nuts, or he's who he said he was, Lord, the, 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 pre, the, the, the son of God from eternity past. He leaves us no other option. So let's just try to picture this for a moment. His glory in your mind's eye. That, that's a little hard to do because we are limited to our context right, to our framework of the things that we've actually seen and experienced. It's hard to imagine the glory of Jesus with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit before the creation of the world, but that's what Jesus is referring to and looking forward to this re-glorification. But think about the glory of creation. Jesus' glory was greater than that. Right? Maybe the most amazing, beautiful thing you've ever seen on this earth. Well, Jesus made that. His glory is greater. Even before he made that, his glory was greater. Does that make sense? Think about for a moment the size of creation, at least that which we can perceive with our current technology. So some of you pilots in this room have broken the sound barrier. And from our perspective, that means you're moving pretty fast, right? I mean, if you broke the sound barrier, you were exceeding the speed of sound, which is approximately 0.2 miles per second. And, and from my vantage point, you know, standing here, that's moving pretty quick, right? But not really if you want to compare that to the speed of light. That the speed of light is 156,000 miles per second. So compare that with 0.2 miles per second, the speed of sound. We haven't cracked that one yet. And I don't think we're anywhere close to uh, going the speed of light. But imagine that if you had a spaceship, okay, that could travel the very speed of light. I, I read the calculation this week that if you got on that spaceship and you moved it up to whatever that's called, warp speed or whatever, you know, and you're going the speed of light, according to our current calculations, which seem to just grow over time, 
right? The more instruments we develop, the more we realize how big it is out there. It would take you 50 octillion years to make it to the most distant star. Okay, now that, that is, for those of you who aren't math majors, um, 50 octillion years would be 50 with 27 zeros behind it. Does that make sense? So a million would be six zeros behind it. Okay, 50 octillion years, which is frankly a number that my mind can't even fathom. That's how big right now we think the universe is, but again, we really don't know what we're talking about here. But Jesus made all of that. So his glory was greater by definition than his creation. And yet he chose to become a a humble human on on our planet in an average sized galaxy. So he's about to go to the cross on this planet, but he is looking beyond it, and he's looking to the future return of the glory of a hero that he will receive in heaven. In fact, we know that's how he got through the cross, by looking beyond it. What a, what a good model for us as we face challenges and adversity. So let's remember that before the incarnation, when, when Jesus Christ became man, that that miraculous um, conception, immaculate conception we call it, of, done by the Holy Spirit in, in the Virgin Mary's womb, Jesus wasn't, didn't exist. Now some of you are starting to look at me and I'll let you ponder that while I take another sip. Did I just utter words of heresy? Well, God the Son existed, but he was not a human and his name wasn't yet Jesus. Remember, he, he was named in, in time. And he took that name Jesus at his birth, and for eternity future, God the Son will be a man named Jesus, the God-man, glorified. He did that for us. So let's think about this. Can infinite glory be increased? He had infinite glory for eternity past, and yet he's asking God to glorify him, um, can infinite glory be increased somehow? Well, the answer to that, obviously, if you know anything about math, is no, if you know anything about theology. Uh, that Jesus has, uh, being, ult- or Christ, that the, the Son of God being ultimately God, the Son, second person of the Trinity from eternity past, there's no way that he could somehow attain more glory, being that he is infinite in measure, he is God, And yet, now, after Christ's completed mission on the cross, more of us that would be humans and angelic creatures can now better understand his glory and bend the knee before him. And that's what he's praying for here. So we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what does this mean for us, Jesus' prayer for his glory before he goes to the cross? Well, I think we should be a little more motivated by his glory. We should live for his glory. It should mean something to us. So glorifying Jesus means, first of all, seeing, recognizing, beholding, and then celebrating 
His glory. That might be the, the best modern translation of that word. Glorify, celebrating. Do, do we celebrate Jesus? And I hope as, 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 as Chris um, challenged us this morning, I hope this motivates how you sing in church. I mean, how can you not, if you're really beholding his glory, how can you not celebrate his glory? But I hope this also motivates how you live your lives this week, right? I, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. So let me glorify him. Let me celebrate him with everything I do this week. So we see Jesus praying for his glory, but then we see Jesus praying here in this text for his disciples, verses 6 through 19. And so I see three things here, and, and again, I don't have, we don't have time to mine the, the depths of the, of the riches, of, of the glory, the beauty of this prayer. But I see three general categories here of, of, of Christ's prayers for his disciples. And let's remember what, were, what was primary on his mind would be the 12 minus Judas Iscariot, all right? And then we're going to see as, as this passage progresses that he's also praying for us today. And, and we are the fruit of his disciples. We are... We are, uh, his, we are the culmination of the mission, right? We are those who have heard the gospel from other disciples and been discipled by other disciples who were discipled by disciples. They go all the way back to these original men in this room with Christ. And so we see a prayer for their identity, a prayer for identity here. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we see that his disciples were given they, they were given to Jesus by God the Father. Look at verse 6, and we're just going to look at a couple of the verses, but I noticed as I read through this text over and over this week, I kept noticing that word given jump out. It was just repeated over and over in this prayer. And so in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you, that's God the Father, gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In, in verse 9, he says, I am praying for them, and I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I don't know about you, but this humbles me. I mean, I, I'm not his because in my own wisdom, I chose him, ultimately. I'm his because God the Father gave me to Jesus. We, we love him because he first loved us. In Ephesians chapter 1, we, we read these profound words from Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What profound, humbling, words. Now, now that's a, this is a whole other sermon, right? If we want to unpack all of that. But let me just say that, that we should be grateful to God for our salvation. He gets all the glory 
for our salvation. Not only did he accomplish the means, he gave us that gift of faith. But that does not remove our responsibility to believe. The human responsibility to respond to the gospel, and they did. Look at verse seven. The disciples did believe, the 11. The disciples minus Judas, who did not endure in faith. We read, now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They responded in faith. So we see that, that Jesus' disciples, his own, were given by the Father, but also they were called to be not of this world. Not of the world, and neither are we to be of this world. Verse 14, Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not in the world. Now, Jesus has already said they are in the world, but do you think prepositions matter? Do you think a little two, you know, syllable, or, you know, a little two-letter preposition, two-syllable preposition can make a difference in your theology? Oh, yeah. We are in the world, but not of the world, according to Jesus. And that means the world's systems and its philosophies and its priorities are no longer ours if we're in Christ. Notice now that, that Jesus is not praying for their physical comfort in the world, but he's praying for their spiritual protection. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Or another translation would be from evil. That's his prayer. He's not praying, Lord, give them their best life now with lots of material prosperity, with no suffering. What he's saying is keep them from evil. I have protected them. Keep them to the end, Lord. Keep them looking to me. Guard them spiritually. So we see here a prayer that they would understand their identity, that they belong to God. They belong to Jesus. And we indeed if we are trusting in him, we have been given as a gift from God the Father to God the Son. We belong to Jesus. He's our master. That means we're no longer of this world. We don't belong to the prince of the power of the air. Well, he also prays for their unity. Now, if you look at Christendom, you look at the worldwide church, do you feel that we are united? Well, I can, I can tell you in, in missions, the biggest problem is the lack of unity among missionaries that struggle to get along. And, and you know what? We're no better, right? Uh, if you, you took any of us and you put us out there in a cross-cultural situation with all that spiritual warfare, do you think that we would just be the most incredibly, um, you know, amazing people um, that everybody would want to be around all the time? Well, maybe not. So this was a big need as Jesus looked at his disciples you think these guys were always united perfectly? Well, we know not because we've got records of some of the things they said, right, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. 
We see Paul and, and Barnabas, two godly men, getting into it and having to part ways. And that wasn't a wonderful thing. The Lord used it, but that wasn't like, you know, good on them for parting ways, right? Um, we need to understand that. So Jesus prays for unity, and he, and he says in verse 11, and, and Billy's going to get to unpack more of this next week because he says a whole lot more about it in the last few verses when he prays for us today. But he says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What, what a comparison. He, he's saying our relationships with one another as Christians, right, as husbands as, and wives, as brothers and sisters in Christ, should be patterned after the actual relationship of the divine trinity. That unity is what we should be shooting for. Now, interestingly, he asks the Father to keep them in his name. And so it's, it's helpful to know that in Jewish culture, a name represented a person's character kind of like Native American culture today. Names were very, very important. And so in Psalm 20, verse seven, we, we read, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What does that mean? We're trusting in the power and the faithfulness of our Lord God. And so Jesus is saying, keep them according to your character, O God. And so he laid the foundation for unity among his disciples by giving them a vision of God, by showing them the Father, through his teaching, through his, 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 the way he lived his life. A.W. Tozer writes, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Now, now an illustration that I relate a little bit better with would be that of uh, a rower, maybe, a rowing team, okay? Uh, I wish I was more musical, um, but maybe you've seen the movie The Boys in the Boat, my daughter, Christine, and I went and saw this last weekend, right? It's a story, and it's a, the book's even better, I think. The movie was great. But it's about an underdog rowing team at the University of Washington during the height of the Great Depression and how they, they actually make it to, true story of how they actually made it to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. But the whole point of the boys in the boat is when you're in the boat, it's no longer about you, it's about the boat, right? And so... Unity is vital. In fact, the rowers of a boat all have to row exactly together in cadence for the whole thing to work. And in other words, you have to kind of die to self and, and think about the team. And they don't even know where they're going. They can't even see where they're going. You know, who know, you know who can see where they're going? So the little guy who sits in the back of the boat, the coxswain. And so what they see, the rowers see the coxswain. And, and, and so if we are all looking to Jesus and listening to the, the cadence of his voice, we will be able to row together in unity, in, in unison together, by keeping our eyes on him. Now, when, when my brothers, who most of you know just returned a few weeks ago from rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, when they first started talking about this row, it was one of my brothers, Tim's idea, um, and I was 
part of the initial team before I hurt my back. And so we, we were thinking about, you know, this is three, three plus years ago, we're thinking about this whole adventure and all the training that it would take. And my mind went right to um, the issue of unity. You know, the whole point was brotherhood, but I'm thinking you get four type A guys in a boat, middle of the Atlantic Ocean, very tight, very tight quarters. Uh, it could end up being murder on the high seas, right? Or at least spiritually so. And so unity was important, and so we started talking about a covenant, how we were going to treat one another. And so my, my brothers, even after I backed out, they took this, they, they made it their own, they made it even better, and they came up with this covenant. And I just want to read to you a little bit from this covenant. Uh, I don't have time to read it all, but it starts by saying, our brotherhood is a gift from God. We will strive to grow our brotherhood through this row across the Atlantic. The endeavor is to make it across, but the ultimate mission is brotherhood. Therefore, we covenant together to grow and maintain, number one, grace. We believe that everything good in our lives comes from God's grace. Therefore, all of our conduct and speech with one another will be characterized by grace. We will cultivate hearts of love for one another. Number two, servanthood. We will purpose to follow our hero, Jesus, by each serving one another as greater than ourselves. We will consider each brother's life, contribution, and opinions as more important than our own. We will trust each other with our weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and we will protect each other, and we will safeguard what is entrusted to us. We will strive to daily die to self and find our identity as the four brothers. Number three was encouragement. We will encourage each other to grow to be more like the man Jesus as we row. We will prioritize the heart over the flesh and the person over performance. We will strive to always assume the best intentions of each other. Our foundational truth will be that each brother is always doing his best. By the way, that, I wrote that part because I didn't want my brother Tim telling me I was being a wuss on the oars. When tired, Frustrated, disappointed, or angry, we will pray and listen before we react or speak. When we wrong one another, we will repent with humility. When we are wronged, we will forgive and restore eagerly and freely. Now, there's, there are two more points because of time. I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. But let me just say that, you know, my brothers, when they were rowing across the Atlantic, it was, it was an organized event. It was actually a race. There were 38 boats out there. And they came in third place, and when they got in, they asked a question uh, someone had heard that they weren't racing, technically. They had said at the beginning, this is, we're, we're just doing this for brotherhood. We're not trying to beat anybody. Uh, and they, and the, 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 the lady interviewing said, you know, asked one of my brothers, uh, so you guys really weren't racing? Really? And they're like, no, we weren't. And they talked about brotherhood. We did this for brotherhood. And that, some of us were racing. Some of us dot watchers were racing for them, <laughs> right? Um, I, I was really wanting them to beat Marduk, and I was really glad they beat Marduk. Um, Babylonian God, I have no idea why that team named, named their boat that, but, uh, or their team that. But, um, but, but th they just talked about brotherhood when they got in. And you know, that, the first night I had the chance to, uh, to, to, that they got back, I, I was in the same room as my brother Trent, and I was noticing, I was listening to him groan throughout the night. His first night in a bed, and he was hurting. I mean, everything hurt, you know, and he was just growing, and he'd be like, ah! And, be, and then I'd hear a, I'm sorry, Thomas. And he was talking in his sleep, 
And he was, his deepest fear was that he was going to be laid on the oars for relieving Thomas. Well, I think there's something here for all of us uh, in their example. Well, Jesus' prayer for unity for his disciples was tied to his prayer for their mission. And so we're going to land the plane with that or dock the boat with that. Jesus' prayer for mission. That's how, he, that's how we see verses 17 through 19. Him ending his prayer for his disciples. He was praying for their mission. He says, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, if, if, if Jesus is your coxswain, if he's your savior, your Lord, if he's calling out the cadence of your life, right, um, and, and you're rowing, that there are two sirens that you need to avoid with your boat, okay? There, there are two dangers on both sides of your boat. And the first would be the temptation to withdraw from the world. Now, there's a desire, and I would say it's a good desire for all of us who've been saved, who've had this, this experience with God to just want to be away from everything, from everybody with God. You know, oh, that I had the wings like a dove, that I could fly away and be with you. That kind of desire, just to be with God. But that can lead to monasticism, and, and plenty of people have done that. They've gone out in the desert, or they've climbed up on a rock and just sat there trying to run away from the world. And, and John Stott talks about rabbit hole Christians, which, which we can think about uh, and maybe ask, am I a rabbit hole Christian, right? Down in the hole, it's safe with all the other Christians, right? So there you got your Christian school or your homeschool co-op, you know, and then you, you pop up out of the rabbit hole and you get as fast as you possibly can to the next rabbit hole where you're safe again, where, where you don't have to have any contact with, with danger or unbelievers, right? And so now you're in church or youth group, Right? And, and, and so you pop up and you run and you're down and you're never really in the world because you're living in your rabbit hole, avoiding any kind of relationships with non-Christians. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, we are all susceptible to this. It is possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. Well, Jesus said in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You know, brothers and sisters, Jesus sent us into the world with a mission. And it isn't easy, but you've got to have contact with the world. You've got to have relationships through which you share Jesus in this world. And, and, and you know, oftentimes those who withdraw from the world their desire may be righteous. It's a desire for faithfulness to purity that causes them to disregard the mission. And then there's the other siren on the other side of your boat, and that might be the temptation to conform with the world. So here you're trying to withdraw, but over here there may be a temptation to conform with the world, and this is where desire for faithfulness to the mission causes us to disregard purity. 
Jesus said in verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So we're to be in the world, but we shouldn't be thinking like the world. We shouldn't be looking just like the world. We shouldn't be using the exact same verbiage of the world. Something needs to shine. Something needs to be different about us so that we may point people to Jesus. So maybe, maybe as you're rowing, maybe you, you tend towards the, the siren of withdrawal, or maybe you're like, nope, I am, man, I, I'm on mission. I am in the world. I am rubbing shoulders. I am close with folks who don't know Jesus because I want to point them to Jesus. Well, make sure that your boat's not crashing on these rocks over here, that the world sees that you are different, that you belong to someone else that you haven't become of the world. Your priorities are not the same. Power isn't your motivation, personal power, right? Um, Or you're not entertained by the same things that the world does. You're not motivated by the same things. There's something higher, and then it's Christ. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here we see the call to gospel mission in the world. And so let's consider this final prayer of Jesus where he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, verse 17. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And when you hear that word sanctify or sanctification, you probably think to be set aside as holy, and that is one meaning of that word. But but another meaning of this word is to set apart for service. And Jesus modeled this, being set apart for service. He took on flesh. He lived in a broken and sinful society, and he became a friend of sinners, Matthew eleven nineteen. But he did not join them in their sin, nor was he tainted by it. In fact, he called them out of it. And so, living in the world, not, uh, being, not being of the world, but being on mission means living a life that has purposeful action. And so, for you, that might mean going out there and joining a tennis club, right, or coaching a team, or getting to know intentionally the cashier at Publix or Walmart, right, or, or a certain waitress or waiter at a restaurant where you go out of your way to intentionally befriend them, cutting your, your neighbor's grass, right, so that you can befriend them and point them to Jesus and be that light. But don't do it in your own strength. Jesus prayed that you would live in close relationship with him in unity with your fellow Christians, and missionally in this world. Well, maybe this morning you're hearing all this. I, I, I pray your, 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 your heart is on fire for Christ, but you know, maybe you feel like an old dry tree. And I read a, I read a story this week about a Scottish pastor during World War I, um, and right after the war ended, he's walking through a battlefield in Belgium, you know, and there's just a lot of gray um, a lot of desolation, and suddenly he starts noticing some leaves falling off of a tree. And it wasn't fall, it was springtime, and he looks up and he realizes that those leaves are falling because there's a little bit of green growth that was just 
coming after, after the storm, after, the, after the, the harsh winter, after all of the destruction, and it was pushing off that dead stuff. And may that be your heart this morning as you encounter Jesus' prayer. May that be my heart as you encounter this high priestly prayer that, that the, the nourishment of the Holy Spirit, that the life of Christ would inspire you to live on mission, to, to love one another, and ultimately to, to look to Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would revive our hearts. I pray that you give us an excitement to do the hard things. Lord, to, to, to reach out to a lost world on mission. Lord, to love one another, even when maybe the one another is difficult. And maybe we're difficult. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love like Christ did. And Lord, I pray we could do all of that because we're abiding in the vine. Lord, that we recognize that we're yours. That we've been gifted Lord, that we've been called out of this world to, to be a chosen people. Lord, I, I pray that we would behold your glory and reflect your glory and that your glory would matter to us. And even as we sing this final song, Lord, I pray that we could celebrate the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen.